Last week, we watched as the Israelites left their slavery. After 12 chapters of biblical text in which the Lord had been preparing a way for they could do so, it finally came time for them to actually pick up and go, to physically walk out of the place of their enslavement. And we observed last week that they did so quickly, that they did so obediently, and that when they left, they took an entire mixed crowd of people with them. Chapter 13 of the book of Exodus gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like for the people of God to leave the place of their enslavement. It gave us this beautiful picture of of something that is so compelling to the outside world that it should actually cause other people to stop, take notice, pick up their things, and follow us along. So as we enter into chapter 14 today, I need you to remember very clearly that when the Israelites left, it was God who was guiding them. He had um, manifested himself, a physical manifestation of himself, and he was guiding them in the way that they should go. It was a pillar of cloud by day. It was a pillar of fire by night, and he was leading the Israelites on the path he wanted to take them. And you may remember from last week that he did not guide them by way of the most obvious path. There was a very well-established coastal road that ran from Egypt up into the land of Canaan. It was the shortest route, it was the most direct route, and it was by far the easiest route that was going to get them there. But it would have prematurely crossed the path of the Israelites with the path of the Philistines, who had a notable military force, and we saw that the Israelites were not yet ready for battle. So fully aware of this, the Lord did not lead them that way. He took them another way. He took them the long way. And when we left them last week, they were camped on the edge of the wilderness. So with all of that in mind, we're going to pick up reading today in chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haharoth, between Migdol and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So what we see happening at this point is the Lord directing the Israelites to kind of just turn around and go back from the way that he had just took them. So I want to take a second and I want to think about this. The Israelites are not yet out of Egypt. They are headed out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness, somewhere in the vicinity of the border of Egypt, but they are not yet out. So given the size and the might of the military in Egypt, we can safely assume that they had outposts and that they had stations scattered all along what would have had been an otherwise uninhabited area of their country. And their primary goal in that area was to keep a close watch on the borders of Egypt. 
They wanted to know if anything unusual was happening around the borders of their country. So let me ask you, don't you think that several million people who are supposed to be making a beeline out of Egypt, going first one way, which didn't seem to make a lot of sense, and then doubling back and going another way, which didn't really make a lot of sense, and then finally camping in this particularly vulnerable situation that effectively placed them between their enemy and the sea, don't you think that might have counted as some unusual circumstances? So that information would have very quickly been communicated up the chain of command to Pharaoh himself, which we come to find out is exactly what the Lord had wanted. So the question that I had to keep asking myself was why? Right? Why would the Lord do this? I mean, hadn't the Lord already gotten what he wanted? I mean, we had seen the thing that he had commanded of Pharaoh over and over and over again over these last several chapters of Scripture. He had said, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. And in chapter 12, we see that Pharaoh had done just that, that he had let the people of Israel go. So what I need you to understand as we try to understand this particular chapter of Scripture is that the freedom of the Israelites was not God's ultimate goal. If it were, then the story could have ended back in chapter 13. If it were, then that would mean that the book of Exodus was a book about the Israelites, and we know that the book of Exodus is not a book about the Israelites. The book of Exodus is a book about God. So in freeing the Israelites, the Lord has proven himself to be everything that he told the Israelites that he was going to be, that he was a God who was faithful to his covenant, that he was a God who was almighty with all sufficient power, that he was a God who could see and who could hear and who would respond, who would make a way for his people to leave out of their slavery, that he was a God who would redeem. So the freedom of the Israelites was a means of achieving the Lord's ultimate goal. It was definitely a byproduct of the Lord's ultimate goal, but the freedom of the Israelites was not in and of itself the ultimate goal of the Lord. The ultimate goal of everything up to this point in the story of Scripture so far, is the glory of God himself. He points us to this truth three separate times in chapter 14 alone. In 14.4, he says, I will receive glory. In 14.17, he says, I will receive glory. And then in 14.18, he says, when I receive glory. The Lord is going to wrap up this thing with the Egyptians in a way that leaves no room for doubt, in a way that inexplicably and undeniably and most certainly makes known his name among the Israelites, among the Egyptians, and lady, as we are going to see as we get into next week, unto the ends of the earth. 
The glory of God is the goal of God, and every detail woman of human history is poised, pointing toward that very same end, a magnificent display of the glory of God at which Romans 14, 11 tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise. That is the way that the story ends. That is the way that our story ends. And it struck me with such force as I was studying this week that, that everything that had happened up until this point of the events at the Red Sea had not yet been enough to get this thing done. I mean, wouldn't you like to believe that if, if you had seen everything that the Egyptians had seen, if you had experienced everything that they had experienced, if you had suffered that magnitude of loss, and if you had seen up close and so clearly the provision that he had made for his own people, do you not think that that would be enough to bow your heart to the one true God? We would like to think so. But apparently not. This thing is not yet done. I thought of the insight that Moses had back in chapter 9 when in the midst of the plagues he turned to Pharaoh and he said, but as for you and your officials, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The Lord knows that his ends have not yet been achieved and the Lord does not leave his work unfinished. So we know going forward from this place in scripture that something is going to occur as the result of Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites that is going to bring glory to God. So in verse 4, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. So I want you to understand really clearly what we have going on here because it's very important that you can see what is not going on here. And what is not going on here is any sort of manipulation by the Lord upon the heart of Pharaoh that is forcing Pharaoh to sin. So I want to think about this. Way back in chapter 6, we saw something that always struck me as extremely interesting. I remember even in in the writing of the study, the first time I really looked at it, I I didn't know quite what it meant, but I think that I have a better idea of of what it meant. In 6.1, God said to, to Moses that eventually, Pharaoh was going to let the Israelites go. And and more than that, the Lord had told Moses that when Pharaoh let him go, that he would force the people out, that he would drive them out, that they wouldn't even get the option to say. And that's exactly what we saw happening in, in chapter 12, right? After the final plague, we see that Pharaoh turns to Moses and he says, get out immediately, you and your people, So I want you to look at what we have here. We have that Pharaoh went from, in chapter 5, declaring, I will not let Israel go. In chapter 7, we read that he refused to let the people go. Twice in chapter 8, he refuses, he will not let the people go. 
In chapter 9, he refuses to let the people go. Three times in chapter 10, he refuses. He did not. He was unwilling to let the people go. And then in chapter 11, he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. So over the course of nine different instances, we see very clearly that the intention of Pharaoh's heart was to not let the Israelites go. So in chapter 12, when when he says to Moses, get out immediately, you and your people, we, we don't have to think very hard to know that, that Pharaoh didn't undergo some deep and meaningful change of heart there, but rather it was the strong hand of the Lord upon Pharaoh that was compelling Pharaoh to let the people go. The Lord had forced Pharaoh to do the thing that Pharaoh did not want to do to momentarily act in accordance with the word of the Lord. So this week, when Pharaoh then changes his mind and he turns to pursue the Israelites, we can see that God isn't forcing Pharaoh to do so. Rather, we see more evidence that the Lord has simply removed his hand that he is no longer compelling Pharaoh to do the thing that Pharaoh did not want to do. Rather, he is letting Pharaoh do the thing that his wicked heart desired all along. He is allowing Pharaoh to chase once again after the Israelites. God does not give us over to sin to which we have not already given ourselves. Several times in Scripture, Scripture warns us that when God makes himself known to us, as he has so clearly here amongst the Egyptians, when he makes himself known to us and and we turn from that truth, we suppress it, we refuse to bow down to it, and instead we bow up against it, then sometimes the judgment of God takes the form of him simply allowing us to go our own way. to turn from God and to go toward our sin. And that is exactly what we see happening with Pharaoh here. But all of that aside, there is certainly a difference between malicious evil intent and sheer stupidity. And we can clearly see how it seems just a little bit like what Pharaoh is doing here is just a little bit stupid. I mean, how could he think after everything that the Lord had done on behalf of the Israelites, how could Pharaoh think that he had some chance of gaining victory over the people of God at this point? Well, it comes down to what Pharaoh would have known and believed about gods in general. To the ancient people, the gods and goddesses who controlled the world were arbitrary and they were capricious. They were quick to change in their actions and their attitudes. They were constantly vying against each other for power and control. I mean, think back to everything that you learned when you studied Greek mythology in school. 
I mean, those gods and goddesses were not sovereign. They were not omnipresent. They were not all-powerful. They would show up in certain times, in certain places, for a certain amount of time, and then they were often very unpredictable in when they would go and when they would leave. So it would have been quite natural for Pharaoh to have simply assumed that that was the case with the God of the Israelites, that perhaps God had simply moved on. Maybe he had grown bored with this particular storyline, or maybe his people had done something that angered him and caused God to abandon them, which would have left Pharaoh with the perfect opportunity to sweep in and assert his power over them once again. That was the view that Pharaoh had of God. Our view of God matters. It it actually has a tangible impact on our life, the things that we believe to be true about God. That is why we are, are, are always pushing so heavily for you to discover the truth about what God says about himself in the pages of Scripture, because what we believe about God actually matters. It has an impact on on the way that we think and the way that we talk and the things that we believe and the things that we do. And when we have a misguided view of God, it leads us to do misguided things in light of that view of God. So we see that Pharaoh had a misguided view of God. And as a result, we come to verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. So I think it's important that we pause to note the manner in which the Israelites were leaving here. It says that they went out defiantly. A group of people who as a whole had not defied the Egyptians in over 400 years were emboldened by the signs and the wonders that the Lord had done on their behalf. And at least in this moment of time, they were confident in their obedience to the Lord and they marched out of the land of their enslavement in defiance. But then, verse 9 The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Ziphon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
So given what we just read about their defiance in verse 8, what comes next is a pretty radical shift in their attitude and their perspective. But no matter how courageous they were as they were going out, the Lord knew that they were not yet ready for battle. And I think as readers of this story, we tend to lean on the side of being just a little bit too harsh on the Israelites here. I want you to stop and consider for a moment what it must have sounded like for 600 chariots to come charging straight at you. It would have stirred up a cloud of dust so dense that you couldn't even see what was headed your way. The earth would have quaked and the ground would have shook as the hooves of the horses and the feet of the men and the wheels of the chariots came closer and closer. I imagine that the Israelites' stomachs must have turned and that their hearts must have sunk at the slow realization of what it is that was coming for them. And then once that realization hit, there would have been panic and there would have been chaos and there would have been confusion. There is not just full-grown men in this scene that we are not talking about. There are women with babies and children. There are the elderly. I mean, I have no illusion at all that I could have behaved any differently than what we see the Israelites doing here. Because I well know that sometimes the enemy comes at you with such force that you simply lose your footing. Sometimes you just forget everything it is that you thought you knew so well. And so the Israelites begin doing all of the things that we begin doing when we no longer like so much the place where the Lord is leading us. They begin doubting the Lord and his intentions for them. They begin looking back and, and reconstructing history in a way that makes it seem like their slavery was never even that bad in the first place. And they begin to question if they ever really wanted to leave. And then they have the audacity to turn on the Lord and accuse him. What have you done in bringing me here? The Israelites had escaped from Egypt physically, but Egypt had not yet gotten out of their hearts. They were still living as if they were slaves to the Egyptians. Like the Israelites, we who follow Christ are no longer slaves to our sin, but we have the tendency to live like them. When we come to a place of uncertainty and doubt, we begin to doubt the Lord and his intentions toward us. We begin reconstructing our history in a way that makes it seem like maybe our slavery wasn't that bad. We begin questioning if we ever really wanted to leave our slavery in the first place. And then not too long after that, we usually turn on the Lord and we accuse him. What have you done in bringing me here? Ladies, once we are redeemed, 
we no longer need to live as slaves. Look at this example that we get from Moses in verse 13. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. For Moses... Believing God had become a way of life. It was no longer something that he sometimes did. It was that thing that he always did. And like Moses, we who have been redeemed from our slavery mentally leave that slavery when believing God becomes a way of life. Women, the enemy is never going to stop talking to you. Maybe some of you who have been followers of Christ for a very long time now can just attest to that, but he is never going to stop talking to you. He is never going to stop lying to you. He is never going to stop accusing you. He is never going to stop wielding any power and control and authority that he has over you. So that means that practically daily, we are going to get the opportunity to either live like slaves or start believing God as a way of life. Moses instructs the Israelites here. He says, stand firm be quiet. In other translations there say, be still. Now, I want you to notice that none of that equals do nothing. Right, we're women in here. We don't like standing still, being quiet, or doing nothing. (laughs) But sometimes, standing still and being quiet And standing firm takes all of the strength that you can muster. As you begin to believe the Lord as a way of life. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So here we see the Lord pointing out to us what it is that is going to bring him glory here. And somewhat surprisingly, it is not the Israelites. Now we're going to get to that. You just wait until chapter 15. But in this case, it is not the ones who are for the glory of God who are going to bring God glory, but it is the ones who are against the glory of God 
who are going to bring him glory. And that is the might and the power of the Lord. That is the strength of his hand, that Pharaoh, his horsemen, his chariots, and all of his officials, the very ones protesting the glory of God in this instance, are the ones who are going to deliver that glory straight into the Lord's hand. And as a result, the Lord says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians will know, the Egyptians, this entire nation of people who for their entire existence had bowed down to an entire array of false gods and goddesses would finally at once understand that the God of Israel was the one true God. And can you imagine any freedom that could set you more free than that? The knowledge that he is the one true God. You might remember that question that Pharaoh asked of Moses way back in chapter 5 when he told Moses, I do not know the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, God is making very sure that the Egyptians will never need to pose that question again. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. So this is a part of the text that we just have to kind of use our imaginations to help us try to comprehend. This physical manifestation of the Lord, which had been up to this point, guiding them from the front, now moves so that it is guarding them from the rear. And and the Lord positions himself somehow between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that there is a cloud and darkness on the side of the Egyptians and there is a cloud and light on the side of the Israelites so that the Egyptian forces cannot close in on his people any further. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry ground. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. So this idea of God parting the sea so that it stood as walls on either side of dry ground, it just absolutely boggles the human mind. So as a result, there has been a considerable push to try to domesticate this portion of Scripture. Some have posited that perhaps a better translation of what we see as Red Sea here would have been Sea of reeds. And that is because the same Hebrew word that we see sometimes translated as red in the Bible can also be translated as reed. 
So there's a thought that perhaps the Israelites had not crossed through this large body of water that we know as the Red Sea, but that perhaps they had crossed through a shallow, marshy, smaller uh, body of water, a sea of reeds, if you will. And I think that that's a very fair question to ask. Hey, women, we don't ever have to be afraid of asking these types of questions of Scripture. If, if the word can be translated both ways, then why is it that when we open our Bibles, it's been translated as the Red Sea? Well, for starters, um, the first translation that we have of the Bible from the Hebrew into the Greek, known as the Septuagint, that translates it as Red Sea. Also, when we see that particular term in the Hebrew for Red Sea that is used here, Yom Suf, whenever we see that term anywhere else in Scripture, it always refers to the body of water known as the Red Sea. And we know this because of the context of those verses and because of the locations given surrounding those verses. And then we get even more insight in the fact that the Hebrew word used for wall in these verses connotes a very large wall, not like a small stone retaining wall, but often it's used to refer to a city wall. So a massive wall that would have absolutely towered above the heads of the Israelites. And I know that we're so tempted to try and explain the Red Sea crossing through some sort of natural means. But God has told us from the very beginning of this episode that he was going to do something that would be unmistakable. That he was going to do something here so that nobody that was involved was going to leave with any room for doubt at all. I mean, listen to me, women. None of us with our human minds are at risk for making God bigger than he is. We're not going to overestimate him. We we are not in any danger of overselling him. None of us in here are going to get to heaven one day and somehow be disappointed with what we find. I'm very convinced that we're all going to have to enroll in beginner's courses and that one of them will be everything you misunderstood about the Bible 101. (laughs) But I do not think that the crossing of the Sea of Reeds is going to show up on the syllabus. (laughs) I think it is exactly as we have it described here. And I wonder why it is that we feel so compelled to try to make the Lord God smaller than he is. Why we try to manipulate him so that he fits in the constraints of our own minds and our own hearts and our own imaginations. I mean, don't you want God to be bigger than you? simply because it is outside the realm of our experience does not mean it is outside the realm of the power of God. Verse 23. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. 
During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Chariots were formidable weapons in ancient times. In fact, they were the most powerful weapons that an army could wield, but they necessitated a very certain type of terrain. I bet you can see how they wouldn't serve you too much good on rocky, mountainous terrain, and apparently there was something about the bottom of the ocean floor that didn't serve them so well either. So I want you to see really clearly what we have happening here. The Lord uses the most powerful weapon that the enemy had against the Israelites for their good and for his glory. I don't want you to leave here tonight without recognizing that. And women, I don't want you to leave here tonight without deeply considering the impact that that has on your very own life. Because I wonder what weapon it is that the enemy wields with force against you. Perhaps it's an addiction, or maybe it's something from your past. Maybe it is something that you did, or the person that you were. It might be a failed marriage or two, a wayward child or two. It could be an uh, abuse that you have gone through or a loss that you've suffered. Whatever it is that he uses to keep you so ruthlessly and consistently enslaved. I can bet that some of you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about in your life. And if you do, I encourage you to just write it down. I mean, you do yourself no good by trying to keep it hidden. And then underneath it, I want you to write Isaiah 54, 17. And you can look it up later to copy it down, but I'm going to tell you what you're going to find. That verse says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me. So you pray that verse over the enemy's weapon as often as he wields it against you. And you begin believing the Lord as a way of life. Women, if there is one thing that you can trust me on, it is this. Because I know maybe better than any of you in here that the enemy can use the most powerful weapon that he has against you for your good and for his ultimate glory. Just another way in which the Exodus story is indeed our story as well. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. 
So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea, and the water came back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So there's a couple of things that I want to point out for you here. First, in this telling of the Red Sea crossing, we hear the echo of previous events that have happened in the story of Scripture so far. The Hebrew word ruach, which is translated as wind in 1421, is in other places in Scripture translated as spirit or Holy Spirit. So in Genesis chapter 1, you have the ruach of God that is hovering over the earth when God says, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place and let dry ground appear. And then in Genesis chapter 8, after the flood of Noah's time, we, we read that God remembered Noah and that he sent a powerful ruach to blow over the earth so that the water subsided and, and dry ground appeared. And then here, in today's passage, the Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east ruach all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So all of those events displaying the creative power of God. The power and ability of God to distinguish and separate light from dark, earth from sky, water from dry land, and above all else, the power and the ability of God to separate and distinguish his people from amongst all others. Our God is a God who makes distinctions. This is something that isn't very comfortable to talk about in today's current cultural climate, but I want you to just look at the clarity that we are given in this text. It says that not one Israelite was lost and not one from Pharaoh's army was spared. I mean, verse 30 describes a gruesome and a really haunting scene. It says that Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Years and years ago, I worked at the University of Houston downtown, and for one of my classes, I had to leave the main building, and I had to cross over the bayou to get to my class in the other building. And on one particular day when I walked out, I could see up ahead that on the bridge that crosses the bayou, there was some sort of hubbub going on. There were a lot of people gathered and looking over the bridge. So as I was making my way to my class, I glanced over to see what it was that everybody was looking at. And I glanced over just in time to see law enforcement pulling a dead body out of the bayou. 
I didn't know what I was going to see, but once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. That image stayed with me for months. But that image points to a very stark reality. John 3, 16, 17 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal life. So there will be those who perish and there will be those who have eternal life. Here at the Red Sea, we see that just like in Genesis chapter 8, that the waters of judgment destroyed those who did not believe, but that salvation came to those who crossed through the waters of judgment by grace through faith. That is what we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. In 1129, they, they tell us how it was that the Israelites cross. That writer says that by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry ground, but the Egyptians, when they tried to do the same thing, they were drowned. So faith is the distinguishing marker. It was true on the evening of the Passover event. It is true here at the Red Sea. And it will be true once again on the last day. So as we prepare to close here tonight, I, I want you to notice something that struck me as very encouraging. And that is that the author of Hebrews gives us no indication of the quality of their faith. Do you notice that they had gone from defiant to scared out of their ever-loving minds in the blink of an eye? So maybe some of those Israelites crossed through with bold and brave steps, but I bet you that a large majority of them went terrified and timid. But the only thing that counted was that they went that they obeyed, that they believed God just enough to follow him into the waters. Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. Women, do you believe the Lord enough to follow him? bravely and boldly or terrified and timid? Do you believe the one who knows the way out of your slavery? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a sovereign God, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you have proved yourself to be 
to us everything that you have said that you are going to be to us, God, that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant, Lord, that you are a God who is mighty in power, who is all-sufficient to save, Lord, that you are a God who sees and who hears the cries of his people and who can move to make for them a way out of their slavery. Lord, so we who have been slaves... Lord, we who have sat under ruthless taskmasters, Lord, we who have been redeemed by the blood of your Son, we thank you and we praise you and we give you all glory tonight. The glory that is so rightly due your name, God. And we thank you for this place, and I thank you for these women, Lord, and I ask that you be with us even still, and I pray all of these things In the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, through whom we are saved, amen.